Shrinkwrap Radio number 800, psychoanalyst Jill Scharf, MD, on International Perspectives on Psychoanalysis Today. And now it's time for Dr. Dave and Shrinkwrap Radio. Radio, all the psychology you need to know, and just enough to make it dangerous. It's all in your head. And now, here's your host, Dr. Dave. My guest today is psychoanalyst Jill Scharf, MD, who, along with her husband, is a co founder of the International Psychotherapy Institute. She is a child and adult psychoanalyst, couple and family therapist, psychoanalytic educator in the USA, China, and Russia, as well as author of many books and an editor. Now, here's the interview. Dr. Jill Scharf, welcome to Shrinkwrap Radio. Well, thank you, Dr. Dave. I'm pleased to be here and nice to meet you. Yeah, likewise. Nice to meet you. In fact, you come highly recommended by my Iranian therapist friend, Mahiar Alanagi. And um, so I send, send you greetings from him. But he's been on my case to uh, interview you and or your husband, and your husband was tied up today. So we're just going to speak to you. Yeah, well, we know Mahir from the fact that he translates psychoanalytic books for the Iranian audience, and also yeah. because he enrolled as an academic student in our program run by faculty at the International Psychotherapy Institute on child psychotherapy and child analysis. Yeah, and he's very excited about that, and he's very excited about what he is, is learning uh, from in that program. And also, I am conveying greetings from uh, my psychoanalyst friend, Professor Brett Carr in London, who has been a frequent guest on this show, and he speaks very highly of you and your husband, and he wanted me to be sure to convey his greetings. Well, I'm very glad to say hello to both of them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Brett Carr is the most wonderful speaker. Um, I times speak of his own material or introduce other people he's really quite quite charming and i would like to add that um david sharp would be very happy to come in and meet with you at sure. another time yeah okay sure and be. yeah and uh yes brett carr is uh such i've never met him in person we've only spoken via zoom but uh he's such a gracious person oh yes yeah just absolutely <laughs> Absolutely gracious. Um, so I'd like to get to know you better and to have my audience get to know you because you have 
a lot of history in the psychotherapy and psychoanalytic field. And um, so if you don't mind me digging into some of your personal details. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so so um, where did you grow up? Well, I was born in Arbroath, which is a very small town in Scotland, but it's distinguished by the fact that it, it was the the venue for the signing of the Scottish Declaration of Independence. Oh, my goodness. From, you know, from which a number of ideas were taken for the, for our, for the American. Oh, really? Yeah. 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 So a tiny town with that big piece of Scottish history. But at the age of five, I moved with my parents, with my father and mother, to Aberdeen. I say that specifically because until then I had lived with my mother and grandmother since my father was in London during wartime, uh-huh. working for one of the ministries associated with the war effort. And uh-huh. he did not want his little daughter and his wife subjected to the war. Right, right. Yeah, the bombing and everything yeah. that was going on there. Yeah. So I saw him only occasionally when he could come home. Um, And then we were reunited when I was five. And surprise, surprise, this very special only child doted on by mother and grandmother um, got a little brother when I was seven, which (laughs) was a great joy. But I now know my analytic experiences. Um, Also quite a shock to myself. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. A shock to your system. <laughs> yeah, I've I've seen some of that in our own family. Uh, we've got four adult kids, and and now we have seven grandchildren. And uh, I remember one of the children. You know, if anybody wonders if sibling rivalry is a real thing, I remember one of our grandchildren. I won't say who, stepping on the hand of the new baby who is on the floor. Yes. Not accidentally. <laughs> yes. I, well, I thought the same until my second child was born. And the first one took her hands and squeezed her head. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you got to watch them a little bit. But they have a very yeah. loving relationship now. But you oh, asked sure. about my growing up. So I grew up in Aberdeen, um, very much a, a town for fishing, granite, and... Beautiful granite, by the way, that uh, gray sparkling mica stone, infused stone. Um, I went to school there. And then, like everyone else, I went on to university there. And in Scotland, uh, I had already chosen to study medicine. So you go straight into the medical faculty. And it's Uh a six-year program. Uh, let, let me just back you up a little bit to find yeah. out a little bit more about your parents. So yeah. your father worked with the government. Uh, yeah, he was what an did, accountant. Pardon? He was an accountant. He was an accountant. Okay. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, how about your mother? Was she any sort of professional, the therapist or anything like that? No, 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 no. Uh, <laughs> no therapist in the family? He was a devoted homemaker and mother. Uh, yeah. And, she had trained at what, what's called commercial college. In other words, to yeah. do bookkeeping and secretarial work, but she never did work. Okay. My father would never have permitted that. So were there any therapists or psychoanalysts in your family? Nope. 
No, no, this is Scotland. This is Scotland. There, there were at the time that I was training, there were only, I think, three analysts in the country. Uh huh. Wow. Yeah. Okay. okay. So uh, take us through, more through your schooling that you started there. Yeah, well, I, I was a lifer. I started at the age of five and I graduated <laughs> at 17 from the Aberdeen High School for Girls. It's the local public school, which was a girls' grammar school. Okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. A competitive entry public school in the American yeah. sense of the word public. Yeah. So you went into uh, this uh, long college program. How long was the program to Six prepare years. you for the medical field? Yes. And then you graduate as a, a doctor and then you do a year oh, of really? mm -hmm. in medicine and surgery. And then you pick your specialty and mine was psychiatry, which I did at Aberdeen as well. I mean, it's so strange now. Huh. But that's what everybody did. They went to the local university. If you couldn't get into your local university, then you might have to go somewhere else, like England. Which seemed why? Very yeah. Why did you choose psychiatry? Given that, uh, uh, well, I don't know what was going on in psychiatry in Scotland, but psychoanalysis wasn't going on in a big way. Yes, but I didn't realize that. Yeah. I I had always wanted to be a doctor, so that was already set. Then when I was about 16, I had a, an English teacher who was interested in character motivation in the Shakespearean plays. And since I was also interested in drama, then uh -huh. it all sort of came together and including she mentioned Freud. And that's when I read The Interpretation of Dreams. And that was that, that was it for me. I said, okay, yeah. do the yeah. first, then you do the psychoanalysis. Then I later learned you had to do psychiatry to uh -huh. be an analyst or yeah. so I thought. I now know that's not true, but I, I had thought that then. Yeah. So it's a progression, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was true in this country for a long time. It's not true anymore, but it was true in, in the U.S. was... Uh, Yes. Uh, and it hadn't been true in Europe. Yeah, no. right. And uh, and certainly Freud did not insist that people be uh, medical doctors. Not at all. He was yeah. very open-minded. He even included women. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, so you pretty much... I had wondered, you know, because I know you've you've uh, listed among your specialties family therapy and some other approaches, and so I was wondering, well, you know, were you a therapist before you were an analyst? But no, it sounds like you were pretty straight into becoming a, a psychiatrist and then an analyst. Straight into psychiatry. Now in Scotland at that time, psychiatry was very much um, a biological approach, um, yeah. but being a, in a university clinic, I did have access to a, a, a supervisor who was analytically trained uh -huh. in Pittsburgh, actually. He had come back to Scotland, having trained there. Um, and another who was a group therapist and someone who had trained with Henderson at the therapeutic community, uh, 
in England. So I had individual analytically oriented psychotherapy supervision with one half of the day. And in the other half of the day, it was analytic group therapy. There was no such thing as couple therapy or family therapy. There was child therapy, but I wasn't training in that then. Then I realized I wanted to know more about how to run a hospital. And I took a job in a therapeutic community called Dingleton, where the group therapy supervisor had himself worked. I did that for a year. And at that, in that job, where I learned a great deal about don't, what we call domiciliary psychiatry. You, you take the team and you go to the person in their home. Okay. You see men, you know, severe mental illness in its own setting. You know, here, here's the, the man who's been a farmer all his life. Now he's depressed in his 60s. And his elderly wife is the one up on the tractor now. And he's sitting mm. at home doing nothing. And yeah. the the marital tension is enormous and you see how it affects their daily life. That's been tremendous help to me in realizing the importance of relationships, not just individual mental states, right, but right. relational context and source of difficulty as well. Yeah. And yeah. I still wasn't getting any family therapy training huh. while I was at Dingleton. Jock Sutherland came from Edinburgh to give a lecture and some consulting to the therapeutic group there. I was very impressed with him. And when I later saw a job advertised in the British Medical Journal to work as a community psychiatrist under his supervision, he was my boss, um, I applied for and got that job. And that was totally formative three years of work with uh -huh. him. Um, and it really, it really dovetailed with what you were all, you were already doing. Community I, was a fit. Psychiatry. I was a fit for the job. Definitely. Oh, yeah. yeah. But he brought to it a depth of analytic thinking and immersion in the literature that was just invaluable. Yeah. And he taught group therapy and couple therapy, still not family therapy. Yeah. And yeah. For that, then I, my next job was at the Tavistock Center in London in the adolescent department, where for half the time I did individual therapy and the other half time I did hospital psychotherapy, uh, where the emphasis was on family therapy. Yeah. Wow. And then at the Tavistock, there was also a workshop on family therapy with adolescents. Uh, and there, you know, all the parts of me came together. And strangely enough, um, I met, I met David. I was going to ask you at what point you met yeah. David. Yeah. And well, about, yes. about, um, about how old would you have been when, uh, when you met him? Uh, I think I was 29, maybe. Okay. So I was very much a career person until I happened to meet him. It was at the end of his sabbatical year at the Tavistock. We happened to coincide at a group relations training conference. I happened to be applying for a job in the adolescent department at that time, where coincidentally, 
the boss of the adolescent department, the chief social worker, and the chief psychologist were all attending this group relations conference. So basically, I had a residential two-week interview for, for that wow. job. Yeah, yeah. And I yeah. did, in fact, get it. Um, but, but then at the, at the end of his time there, David came back to the States, and I inherited from him his project on school leaving, in which we went out to schools and interviewed adolescents about their job choices and their school leaving intentions and experiences. So he came back in November to complete a write-up on some of that research. And that, that's when we really realized that we were interested in each other romantically. Yeah, yeah. So what was, was it that, uh, that grabbed you about him romantically? Well, I think it was really... I mean, it, at first, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't a physical attraction. It was really a, his mind. I loved uh -huh. the way that he thought. Uh -huh. And the way he worked with people together and the kind of leadership he showed. So that, that was really the initial attraction. Oh. And then the rest all followed from that. Yeah. And you two have worked together? Since. Uh, ever since? Ever yeah, since you've worked together? You know, yeah. I understand most of our day is spent separately with our own practices. Uh-huh. Although we we have an office building near our house where we share a waiting room and a bathroom, but he's his <laughs> yeah. mine. And we we cooperate in mostly in teaching and in writing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, fascinating. Don't, we don't actually treat patients together. Okay. Except for teaching purposes. Occasionally we'll do a co-therapy or a co- uh, a conjoint um, assessment. Let's yeah, say. do you do uh, uh, demonstrations do. at conferences, for example, yes. together? Yes, we do yeah. do that, yes. Uh -huh. And in our work in China, that's what they want to see. They want to see us working. And they'll, you know, they'll have families who, who volunteer for a five-session intervention, let's say. It's amazing, actually, how much you can get done under those rather heightened circumstances. Yeah, yeah. Um, so a lot of your work for both of you, I guess, has been international. Uh, how did that come about? Of course, you were already, quotes, international <laughs> from my point of view, because you were from Scotland and he was, yeah. <coughs> was in American? Oh, he's American. He's from... Yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. Yeah, well, it... It began with an importing of international expertise since America at the time was primarily ego-psychological and we were both interested in the object relations approach to psychoanalysis. Okay. So we would import those expert teachers that he had had in his year or I had known in my year and bring them to Washington for a weekend conference. And we, we gathered a group of people around us who were interested in the same approach. So we would charge tuition and we would be able to pay these people their travel expenses in a small honorarium. They were interested in coming to America and spreading the word as it were. So it started that way. And then we realized that there were people around the country who were interested in this, but couldn't always be traveling to Washington. 
And that's when David really looked into technology and learned about the intranet at that time. This is 20, 30 years ago. We used a system called Polycom to connect four sites. It was London, Washington, Salt Lake City, and Panama in Panama, the Republic of Panama. And those four groups studied together you know, in real time with a lot of glitches, I have to say, because those oh, were- Oh, sure. Very, the technology was so primitive then relative to how it is today. The content drew people across those glitches. Yeah. And maintained their enthusiasm and motivation. I remember we were asked to present it one time in London. The people there were not so keen on technology as people in America who were always willing to try something new. And they said, yes, well, maybe you can present content, but you can't really deal with affect. And so we were able to show with video of the four sites interacting that indeed affect transfers across the intranet just as it did in a room. Yeah, pretty hard to uh, rule out affect (laughs) in human relations. Uh, You know, I want to back you up just a little bit to ask you to do a kind of a thumbnail sketch of uh, ego, ego, the ego analysis approach versus the object relations approach, because uh, not everyone in our audience may not be, you know, uh, that sophisticated. Well, the ego is psychological. It pretty much comes straight from Freud and his followers in the States who had, had espoused the idea that behavior is driven by instincts, but instinct's not really a good word for it. Biological drives for seeking pleasure through sexuality, seeking release through aggression. Uh, and they followed Freud's second period of thinking when he moved beyond his original instinct theory to the theory of psychic structure developing in order to control these drives. So you've got the, all the drive materials, biological material, fantasy material located in the part of the self that he called the id which is always pressing to release its energy and must be managed by the, quote, the ego, which is helped to control the unmanageable forces by the strong superego, which develops in identification with particular traits of each parent. Uh, the, The object relations approach has a different view of the baby. The baby is not just this um, bunch of instincts and drives uh, seeking an, an object for their satisfaction, which of course would be the, the mother. Um, but the, and in the meantime, just fused with her, not, not having like a separate existence. Object relations here he holds that the baby is born with competence. The baby main goal is to be in relationship to that mother and the drives for 
the satisfaction of hunger, for connection, for safety, for protection, are all working towards the goal of being in a relationship with her. And there is, as Winnicott said, no such thing as a baby without a mother. There's no such thing as a mother without a child. The birth of the baby turns her into a mother and their relationship then is extremely important in the future development of both of them. Right, right. Well, that's a good job of a thumbnail sketch of those two. I've always felt that uh, that the object language was, is so unfortunate. Oh, terrible. <laughs> it's terrible. Yeah. It, it's, I mean, it's such a simple and obvious theory and it's, it's trotted about in all these uh, jargon terms. Yeah. That really was Fairbairn's fault. Okay. He himself was a very scholarly man, philosoph trained as a philosopher, and very loyal to Freud. He, he couldn't help but argue with Freud. He felt Freud stopped short of moving to the next phase of his theory. But he wanted to use Freud's term, the object, to, I guess, be deferential to the master, as it were. Mm -hmm. um, Gundrip, he wanted to call it personal relations theory. He didn't like this object relations term. Uh, I, of course, being trained in Edinburgh, where Fairbairn had lived and worked, by Sutherland, who had been analyzed by Fairbairn, I never even heard the word object relations. And that's just how we thought. It's how we yeah. did our work. I didn't yeah. know it had a name until I came to the States. Yeah. And then there's a, this other, I think maybe a, a later development referring to it as relational yes. therapy. And what's new in that? Why Can, can you characterize that development? Um. I'm, I'm not expert in relational psychoanalysis or relational psychotherapy. Um, mm -hmm. As I understand it, it, it kind of brings together some object relations idea with some self-psychology ideas and intersubjectivity theory to arrive at a melding of those that says the relationship is the main healing factor and that therapy must go on in an equal intersubjective connection between patient and therapist, where the boundary between patient and therapist is not as firmly sketched in as it is in ego psychology or indeed in object relations theory. I mean, to us in object relations theory, the, the relationship is paramount, no question about it. It's a microcosm of every relationship that the patient has in the yeah. outer world back then, now. And, and we work with how we are affected and how we affect the patient. It's, but it, there's a different balance in the understanding of the here and now and the relationship. Yeah, between yeah the, the, the relational language. Uh, sounds and feels more contemporary. And, and I think language is so important in sort of 
even though there's a lot of research that has shown that therapists uh, in general are much more similar in what they do than yeah, in what they, they speak say they <laughs> and yes, what they say happens. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, yeah, more contemporary. Certainly object relations is just such a dreadful term and so yeah, dated. Right. It yeah. was useful when we began writing, though. This is back in the late 80s. Because at that time, psychoanalysis had a very bad reputation in this country. It's like- Yeah, it's kind of gone up and down, yeah. It has. And yeah. so it was useful to have a different term to disguise the fact that we're talking about psychoanalytic concepts here. Uh -huh. um, but, but we've pretty much dropped the object relations terminology. We just, we're just talking about a psychoanalytic approach that very that, much values the relationship. And yeah. one difference, I think, with the relational group is that they're less inclined to work on transference or to attribute interactions between therapist and patient mm. to transference, rather to, the, to reality. Now, I may be distorting it completely because I say I have not studied with a relationship. Yeah. yeah. So... Um... You and your husband at some point found something called the International Psychotherapy Institute. Mm -hmm. and, and what was that invention designed to solve? What was the problem that you were solving by doing that? Well, one problem we were solving was the word object relations. I mean, okay. our first in the institute used to be called the International Institute of object relations therapy. Ah. Uh -huh. And that was that was when we were inviting these people from Britain to share their object relations approach, whether they were in the, the Fairbairn Winnicott Guntrip camp or in the Klein Beyon camp. Uh -huh. you know, those two are at war in Britain, by the way, but here many miles away we can put them together and take the best of both worlds, which is what yeah. we, we did. Yeah. And a group of people around us interested in studying with us, they were the founding faculty of what we call the International Psychotherapy Institute today. And I'm a little curious why it's not called the International Psychoanalytic, Psychoanalytic Institute instead of the well, Psychotherapy Institute. Well, that's such a good question. I mean, Again, psychoanalysis, it has been somewhat elitist, which we do not like. We value the fact that most of the work is done by people who train as psychotherapists. Only a few people train as psychoanalysts, and they do it because they're interested in studying in depth patients who are willing to come three to five times a week. Yeah. And not everyone is going to do that. Not everyone needs to do that. To me, it's it's for people who are really looking for major character change, and not everybody needs that. Yeah, and uh, not everybody can afford that. No, and, they can. And and uh, also going back to your beginnings in Scotland, which at that point was a relatively undeveloped country, yes. and yes. you were in essence behaving like a behavior like a barefoot doctor. You know, that concept mm -hmm. in China, the barefoot doctor, and, and going out and working with people, you know, in their 
you know, they didn't have to pay to see you a number of times a week and well, national health service. Yeah, yeah. Didn't pay anything at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A different, totally different system. But I would say here that your audience might want to know if someone there is interested in analysis, all the psychoanalytic institutes have clinics where, where they offer low fee, reduced fee, and very, very, very low fee analysis for people who qualify and are willing to make the commitment. They can be treated by those who are candidates in training under supervision with experienced analysts. But those people are already you know, trained psychologists, social yeah. workers, or psychiatrists who are advancing their skills, particularly in the psychoanalytic direction. Well, that's a good point to, to slip in here. Um, so given that you work with people now in, well, I know <laughs> there's the pandemic, which has driven a lot of people to go online. Yes. But you, it sounds like you were already online, you and David. Yes. Um, you know, back in the day when we were using Polycom, couldn't use that for any kind of treatment because other people didn't have it. It was expensive. It was just something yeah. an institution might have. Um, but then when, when people wanted to work with someone with an object relations background, they used the telephone. That was the beginning. And then when Skype came out, we would use Skype until we realized it really wasn't, wasn't at all safe, not truly confidential. And then Zoom came along where you can, you know, you can buy a professional grade. So you have a medical grade platform. Yes. yes. And, and we can treat people who are maybe they're homebound uh, for physical reasons or they live in a part of your state that's a two-hour drive, so they don't want to come into your office four times a week, let's say. And so we developed our understanding quite early. And that came in very handy during the pandemic. We were able to work with colleagues at the American Psycholytic Association to develop training programs to help people over the transition. Because people, people suddenly had to either end their treatments or adjust and move online. And they weren't used to it. They needed yeah. help and support, which we were able to give. Yeah. So uh, you both do in independently do therapy online with individuals? Yes. Uh -huh. Right yeah. now, it's, all, it's entirely online. Our offices oh. are not open yet. Okay. And... What do you find to be the, well, the obvious advantage is that maybe they can't leave. Uh, so there's that advantage. Uh, but um, do you find that there are specific problems or, or deficits in that approach? There are some people for whom it's a huge deficit. That's the person who wants to come in my office, lie on that couch, and enjoy the fact that I prepared that couch for them and that I am sitting right there with them. There are some people who really need that. Mm -hmm. And so for them, being online is really difficult. And many of them will refuse. they rather have nothing. Now, others, they're able to 
sort of symbolize the office that they have known and carry it with them. And, and they're able to make the transition. Now, there are some younger patients who are absolutely fine with it. That, you know, they live their life connected. Right. And they're used to texting people rather than calling them. They, they're very comfortable with the technology. To them, it's not impersonal at all. Now, for those for whom it's a deprivation, it can just kill the treatment. Or you can use it as, as an experience of the kind of deprivation they suffered earlier in their life. You know, the frame of the treatment mm. carries the history of the early mother-infant relationship. And you can, if you can interpret that and really use the frame, the setting, to, to recognize the transferences that are developing to the setting, not just to the analyst, you can really make it quite a useful experience. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. And uh, with you children, know, many children find it difficult. Uh, yet there are other children who can cope. The ones who have known you already and have a way of dealing with you through play and characters or play, uh, Play-Doh or, or um, art media, sculpting, whatever, then they just set up a desk here and then they do that. And oh. I'm... <laughs> doing it with them, let's say. Yeah, yeah, great. Um, another child who's younger, they, 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 they don't know what's happening. So those, those children sure. we tend to see with their family members. Yeah. We do a family meeting instead and wait for the day when you can see that child in your office where it's much easier. Uh, when we think about analysis, we always think of very long-term relationships do you find that you're are you doing a mix of long-term and 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 very short-term work yes i i like to have the the mixture i like to see individual analytic patients couples children families and parents and a complete mix through the day yeah and in the future i imagine having a mix of in office and online uh meetings mm -hmm. i don't you know i don't like that word in person as because if it's only when you're physically present you are in person um, I see. me i'm in person whether i'm in my office or right. working online because i'm still me i still have a relationship with that person i still have my feelings i still have my bodily experiences in response to the material that's presented to me so we are speaking in person right now we are very good. <laughs> yes. good oh yes so what are the countries that you're involved with right now in your work can you rattle them off <laughs> um well there's two mainly i i run a child therapy training program a two-year program in china it's located in beijing but it serves therapists around China and is conducted entirely online. Now it was advertised two, three years ago as having two immersions in Beijing that uh -huh. 
the Chinese therapists would all travel in for a residential week, uh, two times during the two years. But COVID intervened, so that immersion week never happened. Now, those students really do regret that. They really wanted that experience. And oh, they yeah. have it. And I don't see any time in the future where it's likely. As you what know, Shanghai is yeah. on lockdown, so is Beijing now. There are a host of questions, you know, about psychotherapy in China. (laughs) Is this possible within the context of a repressive political regime? Well, there's a psycho boom going on in China. People are in analytic training. Actually, they're studying everything the West can offer. There are training programs in hypnosis, existential behavioral. I mean, therapies they're, I can't even mention. Can't even, they're, I, they're really hungry for this. Uh, very hungry. Yeah. And the psychoanalytic, when presented in very individualistic terms, is not as acceptable. Right, right. It's very much group-based as yes. the approach bringing to them family therapy. That makes so much sense. But family therapy is also a way of conveying analytic concepts in an acceptable form. Mm-hmm. And then those who, who learn a bit of theory, then they become interested in the clinical application of the theory. Then they become interested. Some of them become interested in intensive psychoanalytic training. Yeah. Some of and- which is done on site and some of which is done entirely online. Yeah, I had heard of that. And I don't know if it was your work that I had heard of, but I, some years ago, I, I and it was like sort of a wake-up call, you know, to what? They, they're doing analysis online with uh, people in China? That's... Uh, yes. Well, the first, the first people there were from the International Psychoanalytic Association, and they would do it in person, but they were brief moments of clinical experience as teachers would fly over for a weekend or a week or whatever, and nothing in between. No, there was no real personal analysis of any continuity. And then later, an American group called Kappa came in to teach some psychotherapy. And out of that grew an interest in psychoanalytic training, which can be done online at a couple of institutes of the American psychoanalytic, including ours, which is the International Institute for Psychoanalytic Training, which is the analytic program within the International Psychotherapy Institute. Oh, so you have, you do have that. They can train at, um, let me get this right, Philadelphia, and I think Chicago. I think those are the, the main training centers for those who want to train online. You, you said that right now you're working with two countries. Uh, yeah, Russia's the other. Russia's the other. Mm-hmm. Same question <laughs> comes up, you know. Uh, uh, well, there must be. Yeah, go ahead. It's become very interesting. I mean, it always was. These people are, they're quite well trained, actually, um, 
they've had more exposure to Western thinking than the Chinese have had. Wow. They, they've had some exposure to the French school and of psychoanalysis. And they've welcomed psychotherapy training there. Now, we don't do psychoanalytic training there, although they would be welcome to attend our online psychoanalytic training program. And maybe one or two will do so. Um, but nowadays with the war in Ukraine, oh yes, we are finding the psychotherapists very distressed. Many of them are, are that they're people who value freedom and they they don't like aggression against another country where many of them have friends, family, relatives. Uh, so it, it's a very hard time for them. And they're so grateful that we have not turned our back on them because they're uh -huh. right. Yeah, good for you. Yeah, they, because they, they need, they really need the support right now. They're, they're loyal to Russia. They don't like what's happening in their homeland. Some of them are leaving. Some of them are staying and facing the, the anguish that they feel. And now they're hurting economically. Although some of them have resources, you know, others are being stretched, finding it hard to pay for their tuition and so on. So we don't really know if their, if their psychotherapy school that we collaborate with will be able to survive. We don't mm. know. Mm. Well, it's great that you are in the thick of it and uh, able to to uh, provide some kind of uh, hope and respite for people in those in those well, settings. Well, th thank you, David, for appreciating that. You know, there are people who have criticized us as oh, if really? we're against our government. Mm -hmm. But but we don't see it that way. We. I mean, I think of it as, you know, during the Cold War, remember how jazz was so popular in, in Russia? It's like right. soft politics. It's, a, it's a, a way of continuing to communicate in a way that is apolitical. Well, the problems seem to be, else. always seem to be at the top, you know, with, with power-hungry individuals. Yes. Uh, who, uh, uh, but, but most people around the world, if you can meet them face to face or online, <laughs> you know, they're, they're, we're all struggling with the same sorts of issues and uh, have a common humanity that we can communicate and draw upon. I mean, uh, I, I, so I learned this during the time of the troubles in Ireland. Oh, yeah, and you'd yeah. hear the stories from the Catholic mother who lost her son. You'd hear the story from the Protestant mother who lost her son. You think, These are the same women. Right. They're suffering the same thing. And it's all so crazy. Yes. Yes, indeed. What do you think of um, uh, neuroscience has brought a whole oh, my goodness, yes. load of information and and uh, what do you think of this neuroscientific revolution, really? And how does it interface with psychotherapy? And does it has it uh, impacted your thinking and your practice? It has. 
And the, there's so much that has been learned recently from neuroscience yeah. that's so applicable. The, the thing that is of most interest to me is the concept of mirror neurons. Yes. It, it is discovered that if, if a monkey raises a glass, take a drink, and another monkey is watching, that other monkey experiences excitation in the part of the brain that innervates the muscles for raising a glass. Right. So it is thought that the same is true for the parts of the brain that record emotional events. For instance, I, I become angry. I, you see my face, you see my muscles tense up and you, you experience that emotion yourself. Um, in identification with me. And that's how you understand what I'm feeling and can then translate it into words that express your compassion or your irritation with me. Right, right. And, and that also brings uh, insight into the relational psychotherapy that we we're talking about, where as a therapist, you can begin to monitor what's going on inside you and mm -hmm. realize, oh, this may have something to do with what's going on inside my client. Exactly. That's the management of countertransference. Yeah. Uh, using the countertransference to have an idea of what's being conveyed to you and then putting it into words to make sense of it for the patient. Yeah. What's your vision for the future, both in, in personally, for the field of psychotherapy? You can tackle that question from any point of view or all of them. <laughs> well, what the future holds for me is continuing to work. Uh, I have reduced my hours so that I do have time in the middle of the day to exercise, which I didn't used to devote specific time to and time to write and time to design programs and time to mentor younger people. I'm enjoying that quite a bit. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I do still have a number of patients. I take, take new patients and enjoy my work a lot. Um, I do have interest in theater. I like to I, I mean, I like to participate in readers' theater, write plays, do other things. Yeah, yeah. And wow. I like to help other people get their books published. And a new project that I hope to see continue um, is a project for free ebooks, free psychoanalytic and psychotherapy texts. Mm -hmm. It can be downloaded at this freepsychotherapybooks.org website, um, which David and I are editors for. He's now the publisher, having taken over from the originator of the project, which was Jason Aronson, the, a very well-known psychoanalytic publisher until his retirement. But he's still busy working, and so are we. Yeah. So I'd yeah, like that's to see that. Maybe it's had, I think, a million downloads in 30 countries around the world. Oh, my goodness. I'd like to see that continue and grow. And oh, yeah. Spread. 
knowledge and support in places that can't really get access to books. Yeah, yeah, that's such a, you know, the exposure to psychotherapeutic ideas, I think, is, uh, is a humanizing, democratizing one. And uh, so I, and I so the idea. idea of making it freely available is really important. Yes. I wish we yeah. could do the same with therapy, but unfortunately therapy depends on people's time. You have yeah. to really be there connecting in a yeah. relationship. Um, the other thing I see in the future is that most people will practice in a mixture of in-office and online settings. Mm -hmm. Because yep. people in the future, that are, having experienced what online can do, aren't going to be willing to devote an hour to travel across Los Angeles to see their therapist or two hours to travel across yeah. Beijing to see their therapist. Yeah, and that's a dynamic that's playing out in the workplace generally, you know, in many industries where people don't want to go back to the office, you know, or the, some kind of a hybrid of that for some social I, interaction. But Yeah, I uh, think a hybrid because so much creativity occurs just over the water cooler, as they say. Yeah, right. Each other in the corridor. Right. Ideas spark in so many different ways. Do you have a website uh, that you'd like to everybody to know about in terms of if they might want to contact you or get training or get therapy? How would yes. they do that? Dave and I have a website called sharfmd.com. That's okay. S-C-H-A-R-F-S-M-D.com. Um, and then we've got freepsychotherapybooks.org that I mentioned, which is part of IPI and the IPI website is www.theipi.org. That sounds weird, but it stands for the IPI. Yeah. The International Psychotherapy Institute. Right, right. That's wonderful. Yeah. Well, uh, Dr. Jill, I really want to thank you for this uh, time that you spent with me. You've been very open with uh, information and it's been uh, lively and uh, sign me up. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Dr. Davis. Yeah. It's been a great pleasure talking to you. It's like being with an old friend I haven't seen in a while. Oh, good. Thank you. I'm very grateful to my longtime Iranian listener and friend, Mahiar Alinagi, for suggesting that I interview husband and wife psychoanalysts David Scharf, MD, and Jill Scharf, MD. It turned out David was not available at the time I had set aside, but Dr. Jill was, and we had a delightful conversation. I have to echo her summation at the end of our interview when she remarked, quotes, it was like getting together with an old friend you hadn't seen in a while. Close quote. Indeed. Mahiar and I have been corresponding for 10 years or so, ever since he reached out to me while he was still an undergraduate at the University of Tehran. 
And over the course of our correspondence, he went on to do graduate work to become a psychotherapist there, complete his two years of compulsory military service, and more recently to translate a growing number of books by analysts into Farsi. And it was Mahiar who connected me with the amazing London psychoanalytic historian, Professor Brett Carr, who is a friend of Shrinkwrap Radio and a fairly frequent guest. Dr. Jill and her husband have gotten to know Professor Carr through various international conferences where he has been a presenter, and she describes him as an exceptionally brilliant speaker. Meanwhile, Mayar has been studying child therapy with doctors Jill and David Scharf through one of their online training programs. In part, I recite all this to underscore how connected the world of psychotherapy has become. Technology is really shrinking the distances between us all. I would say I haven't met any of these folks I'm talking about, quotes, in person, close quote, only virtually. Yet Dr. Jill would be quick to correct me because, as we heard, she regards these online encounters as very much in person. Our own session certainly makes her point, I think. She was very much in her personhood, as was I, such that we both felt an I-thou connection. I take pride in being one of the first podcasters and online market researchers. I was surprised to learn that Drs. Jill and David were doing online training and therapy even before there was an internet or services like Zoom. They were truly pioneers and believers in the educational and therapeutic benefits that online tools enable. Moreover, they were quick to grasp that national boundaries and the hardships of travel can be transcended by these technologies. So she from Scotland and he from the U.S. discover love and one another during the war years in London and become international citizens. As the years go by, they both practice as individual therapeutic professionals, but work as a team on a number of undertakings. Most notably, they found the International Therapy Institute, or IPI, which becomes a vehicle for a variety of initiatives, including publications, trainings, workshops, and so on. Given their mutual history as psychoanalysts, I was curious why IPI wasn't named the International Psychoanalytic Institute. I totally understood Dr. Jill's response that psychoanalysis suffers from negative stereotypes among some professionals and members of the lay public. I'm particularly impressed by David Scharf's initiative under IPI to create a free library of therapy texts. To me, this is on a par with other visionary services such as Wikipedia, the Internet Archive, and so on, which affirm the importance of a commons outside of the commercial world. Therapy books tend to be expensive. The healing knowledge they contain really need to be available to everyone in the world. I really love Dr. Jill's compassionate observations about the hunger for therapy training in China and Russia. 
whatever lingering stereotypes might be hanging around in my own brain about psychoanalysts being cold, distant, judgmental, and so on, were certainly dispelled by the warm, in-person presence of Dr. Jill Scharf. If you wish to learn more about the Scharfs and their work, training opportunities, and so on, here are the key URLs. www.scharfmd.com, which is for both David and Jill, and Scharf is spelled S-C-H-A-R-F-F, and then md.com, and www.theipi.org, and finally, freepsychotherapybooks.org. Caroline, a passionate and avid listener from Zurich, Switzerland. I love Shrinkwrap Radio because the shows are very inspiring, motivational, and educational. They cover a wide range of diverse topics presented in an entertaining and articulate way. In particular, what brought me to the show is Dr. Dave himself as a person. He's an incredibly erudite professor in both worlds of psychology, in the academic slash mainstream and quote more alternative fields. And he's an excellent and empathetic listener. This makes him as a unique host and maybe this is the hidden secret of getting shrink grab radio addicted. There is no other podcast show that I could think of that offers this combination. Thank you so much. And I hope you will continue the show for a while, Dr. Dave. Thank you, Caroline in Zurich for your passionate endorsement. And of course, thank you to all you other monthly supporters. Your regular donations are really important. So with that, once again, it's time to shrink wrap it up. Thanks to today's guest, psychoanalyst Jill Scharf, MD, co-founder with her husband, David Scharf, MD, of the International Psychotherapy Institute for her warmth and pioneering international perspective. Next week, my London blogger and associate, Isabella Clark, will be interviewing Mary Jane Rust, a remarkable London-based artist and therapist who will be discussing her new book, Towards an Eco-Psychotherapy. I can't wait to listen to it myself. Once again, this is Dr. Dave reminding you to be kind to yourself, others, and the earth. You've been shrink-wrapped by Dr. Dave. All the psychology you need to know, and just enough to make you dangerous.